Well, good morning again. If you take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. My text for this morning will be verses 29 and 30, but just for context, I want to begin in a very familiar verse, verse 28, and then read down through verse 30. The Apostle Paul is writing, he is writing this letter to the believers in Rome, and he says here in verse 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become, to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. I was sitting next to Doug earlier, and he said, what are you preaching on this morning? And I said, Romans 8, 29, and 30. Just some lightweight passages uh, this morning. This is a rich passage of scripture, and I, I hope that I can give some thorough explanation on everything that the Lord would want us to know about the order of salvation here in Romans. Lord, again, we ask for your help. I pray that I would be an effective communicator and messenger of your truth. Lord, may the words of my mouth, may the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. And we thank you that you give us your Holy Spirit to illuminate and give us understanding of your word. And I pray you would do that even now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Timothy 3.16, a passage of scripture I think all of us know, says all scripture is breathed out by God. If you believe this this morning, just say amen. amen. All right, that's good. We can proceed then, can't we? I love what, how it reads in the ESV. It says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All scripture, all means all here. All scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is profitable. And it is for teaching. It is for reproof. It is for correction. And it is for training in righteousness. And this includes passages that are easy to understand, like John eleven thirty five, 35, Jesus wept. I think we can all understand that one. It is also true for passages that are hard to understand and passages that are almost impossible to understand. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul gave this final charge to Timothy, Paul at the end of his life, saying to him, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. From the belly of the great fish, Jonah said this in Jonah chapter 2, verses 9 to 10, But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. I love what he says next. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. 
I trust any man who spent three days in the belly of a, of a great fish. And here he tells us that salvation is of the Lord. So today I want to look at with you at these five links, these links of this golden, unbreakable chain, so that you and I could join Jonah, that we would have understanding that salvation is indeed of the Lord. God has been working out his purpose for us since long before we were born, and he will bring it to completion long after our immediate circumstances are forgotten. We are the objects of a plan of redemption that began in eternity past and stretches to eternity future. And so to help us see this, the Apostle Paul, again, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, focuses on five of the most important steps in the Ordu Salutis, which is the order of salvation. And these five steps reveal conclusively that it is God alone who saves for every action that Paul mentions here in Romans 8, 29, and 30 are divine. Clearly, salvation is all of God with no contribution on our part. That hurts our pride a little bit. We want to think that we did something to merit God's salvation, that we cooperated with God, we did something, we got to have, okay, maybe God will give you 99%, but give me that 1%. But the only thing we contribute to our salvation is our sin. And so I want to look at these five links here of this unbreakable chain. And we begin, first of all, with foreknowledge. Foreknowledge. Verse 29, Paul begins by saying, for those whom he foreknew. The Greek here is the word pro-gnosko. Gnosko means to know. Pro means before. And so the meaning clearly, is to know beforehand, to foreknow. And God only has to say something one time in order for it to be true, but it's always helpful, isn't it, when God says something more than once and when we have the ability to compare Scripture with Scripture. Paul uses this word later in this epistle. In Romans 11, 1 to 2, he says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And when the Bible speaks of God knowing someone, it suggests an intimate relationship between the creator and the one who was created. 1 Corinthians 8, verses 2 and 3, If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. The word foreknowledge is not used exclusively by the Apostle Paul. It is used by Peter as well. In 1 Peter 1, verses 1 to 2, as Peter introduces that epistle, that letter that he wrote to the believers, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. This is the same word that we see here in Romans 8, 29. It is in the noun form in 1 Peter 1. The Greek there is prognosis. 
heard of that word before. And in the English, we know a prognosis is a forecasting of the probable course and outcome of a disease. Peter would use this again later in that same chapter, saying this in verses 18 to 20, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. So here in 1 Peter 1, 19 to 20, he, taught, he uses this word, the same word that is found here in Romans 8, 29, the same word is, that is found in 1 Peter 1, 2. It is in the verb form here in verse 20, prognosco. So we must believe and we must admit that whatever it means in verse 2 of 1 Peter 1, it's, it must mean the same in verse 20. It's the same word from the same author. It was used again by the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost, as recorded in the book of Acts, as we have seen in our study of that great book. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 23. Peter says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. I think we would all agree this morning that it was the predetermined plan of God that God sent his son Jesus to earth. This was decided before the creation of the world, before the creation of man, that Jesus would come to earth, that he would live a perfect life, that he would die a sacrificial and atoning death in our place for our sins and for our justification. The predetermined plan of God, and this is equal to foreknowledge as we read here in Acts chapter 2. And I would just ask you for your trust as a teacher of the word of God, as one who takes the word of God seriously, as one who understands what James says in James chapter 3, verse 1, when he says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. I think about that passage every time I get up to preach the word of God. And I was reminded of that fact again this morning as I was reviewing this sermon and doing my final preparations for this message. The vast majority of evangelicals today reject the Reformed view of predestination, which I would call the biblical view of predestination. And they adapt instead a position of prescience or foreknowledge. The Arminian view of God's electing foreknowledge contends that God looks ahead into time to see who will choose him. And then he bases his election or his choosing on that decision. This view has two errors in it. First of all, it separates God's will from future events. To say that God looks ahead and then decides what he will do is based on our future decisions, and that is to make God dependent on man and on his decisions. And that makes man the governor and God the governed. It makes man the chooser and God the chosen one. But Jesus reminded his disciples in John 15, 16, 
You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. Friends, God choosing us had nothing to do with our works in the present or in the future. Second, the second error here is this view is based on a misconception about foreknowledge. What God sees in the future is what he has ordained will be. Something cannot exist unless God has first ordained it. Here's a couple of of confessions that help us to understand this a little bit more. The Westminster Confession of Faith says this, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatever or whatsoever comes to pass. The Baptist Confession of Faith dating back to 1689 reads this this way, from all eternity God decreed all that should happen in time And this he did freely and unalterably, consulting only his own wise and holy will. Therefore, if God were to look down the corridor of time and see our decision, our decision to choose and follow Christ, our decision to trust in Christ by faith, that corridor of time and our decision could only exist because God ordained them to exist. You can't separate God's ordaining will from the future. If the future is set, it is because God established it. For we read in Isaiah 46.10 that God has declared the end from the beginning. How many of you are thankful for that this morning? God foreknows us in the sense that as our creator, he knows us from the very beginning of time, from all eternity. And those whom he foreknew... He predestined to salvation. He knew us from the beginning. He set his love upon us apart from anything we have done or will do. I believe Jeremiah understood this. As the Lord spoke to him in Jeremiah 1.5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16 For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were written all the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. 1 Timothy 1, 8-9, Paul says to Timothy, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join me, join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted in us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. So the, for, the word foreknowledge does not refer to awareness of what is going to happen, but it clearly means a predetermined relationship in the knowledge of the Lord. That is what you find with a careful exegesis of this text. God brought the salvation relationship into existence 
by decreeing it into existence ahead of time. Believers in Christ are foreknown for salvation in the same way that Christ was foreordained before the foundation of the world to be a sacrifice for our sins. So the biblical term foreknowledge means that God planned before and not that he observed before. It's a major difference. God is taking action. He is planning, not observing something. And thus God pre-thought and predetermined the salvation of each and every believer. Friend, if you are saved today, if you find yourself in a state of grace, if you know that you are in Christ Jesus, it is because God foreknew you before you were born, before the foundation of the world. And that should lead you and I to praise and worship of the Savior. The second word, the second link in this golden, unbreakable chain here is the word predestination. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. The Greek here is the word pro-orizo. Horizo means to mark off by boundaries or to determine. Pro, again, meaning before. And so the meaning of the word, when you just look at the word itself, means to determine beforehand, to predestine. Paul uses this word in his first epistle to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2.7. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The doctrine of God's sovereignty in salvation is known as predestination. It is a biblical term. It is not just a theological term that men came with, up with. It is a biblical term, and we see that as we study the word of God. It is a biblical term which lays a foundation for correctly understanding what it means to be chosen by God. Earlier I said, if you believe that all scripture is inspired by God, say amen. I think I had almost 100% participation, okay? Everyone who believes the Bible, everyone who believes that God's word is the inerrant, authoritative, breathed out words of God believes in predestination. You're like, not me, Kirby, I don't believe it. If you believe the Bible, you believe in predestination because it is found in the scripture. Many years ago, I was working for Fellowship Christian Athletes in Illinois, and uh, I had a large territory that I was responsible for. I had about 50 to 55 schools that I was entrusted to take care of and, and uh, encourage coaches and equip them to do ministry in their local schools. And one of the schools that I had was kind of in uh, no man's land. Uh, a friend and I, I was, I was in East Central Illinois, he was in Southern Illinois, and there was just like this one area, neither one of us really wanted to claim it because it was too far away. But I said, hey, I'll take this school if you'll take this school. And so there was a school that had FCA for many years, and I had never been there, and a couple football coaches were doing that. And so I, I made contact with them and I said, hey, I'd really like to come down and, and visit your huddle and talk about FCA camps. And, and so we decided on a date and I drove down there. Sally went with me and 
and it was about a two-hour drive, and I met up with those coaches, and then we, we went on to the house where that huddle meeting was going to take place. And when I got there, there was a, a lady who I'd never met, and she was kind of running the meeting and doing a fine job. And so afterwards, being the FCA person, the director, I wanted to get to know her, see who she was. Was she a teacher? Was she a coach? And so I kind of came up to her and was talking to her. She didn't seem real thrilled to want to talk to me. And, and uh, so I was like, hey, just can you tell me a little bit about yourself? And she told me her name and what she did. And I said, can you tell me where do you go to church? And this is what she said. She goes, I'm Presbyterian, but we're not the ones who believe in predestination. I was like, wow, that's really interesting. Uh, either she did not believe that the Bible was the word of God, or she was meaning to say that her church did not believe in the reformed view of predestination or the Calvinistic view. But if we believe the Bible to be the word of God, we must have some doctrine of predestination because the Bible speaks of it on numerous occasions. R.C. Sproul says this, if we are to be biblical, then the issue is not whether we should have a doctrine of predestination or not, but what kind we should embrace. If the Bible is the word of God, not mere human speculation, and if God himself declares that there is such a thing as predestination or election, then it follows irresistibly that we must embrace some doctrine of predestination. Again, the Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689 says this, those of mankind who are predestined unto life, God before the foundation of the world was laid according to his eternal and immutable purpose and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory out of his mere free grace and love without any other thing in the creature as a condition or cause moving him thereunto. That is a solid statement, and that is because that statement really is taken from the words of the Apostle Paul and his words to the believers in Ephesus. Ephesians 1, 4 and 5, and verse 11, he says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. So predestination means that God has determined beforehand who would come to faith in Christ and be saved from eternal destruction. And this implies that our salvation is not dependent on ourselves. It is dependent on God. Salvation is of the Lord. And those who he has chosen will come to faith. And that faith is necessary for salvation. And that faith results in justification. But our faith, our salvation, does not begin with that faith. Our salvation begins with God. Verse 29, back here in Romans chapter 8, he says, there's a purpose here. He says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that, here's our purpose, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Foreknowledge, 
as we looked out, does not determine an outcome, but predestination does. Having chosen us before the foundation of the world, God determined that we would become like his son, Jesus Christ. That is God's purpose for your life. That is God's will for your life. That is God's goal for every one of us who are here this morning. That God would make us to be like his son. We who were sinners, dead in our sins, were chosen and predestined to be God's beloved children. That we would be the siblings of Jesus Christ, our elder brother. Christ being the firstborn. The Greek here is prototokos. It means the preeminent one. Christ is the preeminent, the supreme one, the only one who is the rightful heir. Christ is the preeminent one among those who have become his brethren by being made like him. So friend, if you're here today and you are a believer in Christ, you're in a state of grace, it's because you were predestined for salvation. That you would be forgiven of your sins and have everlasting life. So you are foreknown by God. You are predestined by God. The third word we want to see and look at here in the golden unbreakable chain is calling. Calling. Verse 30. And these whom he predestined, he also called. Do you see how this is flowing? We have foreknowledge. We have predestination. And now we have calling. All these go together. It is one chain. It is unbreakable. It is golden. It is divine. It is from God. The Greek word here is kaleo. It is seen also in verse 28, if you want to read that again with me. And then we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to, the, to those who are called according to his purpose. Paul used this word in the opening greeting of this letter In Romans 1, 7, he says to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints. And again, there's a natural progression here. This is a chain of events initiated by a holy and loving God, a chain that cannot be broken. Those whom he foreknows, he predestines, and those who he predestines, he calls. So for every person that God has foreknown, that God has had an intimate relationship with, and for every, every person that God has predestined for eternal life, he also calls them to himself. In the New, New Testament, especially as we look into the epistles, the call of God refers to God's effectual call of sinners to salvation. This is the doctrine of election. And that is what the Apostle Paul has in mind here. This is the effectual call of God to sinners. There is a general call. There is an invitation that all of us try to give. We invite everyone to come to Christ. That is an outward call. The invitation is found in the gospel for anyone who would hear to repent and turn to Christ. Jesus says in Matthew 11, 28, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Romans ten thirteen. for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But earlier, as we read from Matthew 22, verses 1 to 14, there was this external call for these people to come to this wedding feast. But we read there in the end, in verse 14, 
that many are called, but few are chosen. The outward call goes to many, but no one naturally responds to that call because they are unable to do so. They are dead in their trespasses and sins. What can a dead man do? Absolutely nothing. Again, back to the Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689, it says, The effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone, not on account of anything at all foreseen in man. It is not made because of any power or agency in the creature who is wholly passive in the matter. Man is dead in sins and trespasses until quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit. By this, he is enabled to answer the call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed by it. The enabling power is no less power than that which raised up Christ from the dead. So therefore, the general call to salvation must also be accompanied by the effectual call. Jesus said in John 6, 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. John 6, 65, And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. It's really interesting. Let me read that verse again. Jesus said in John 6, 65, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. That type of teaching wasn't popular then as it's not popular today because we read in the very next verse that many of his disciples turned and walked with him no more. Those who had been fed, the feeding of the 5,000, but when Jesus started saying things like, you must eat of my bread and drink of my blood, or eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, or you have no part in me, and you can't come to me unless it has been granted to you from the Father. It was too hard of a truth. James Montgomery Boyce, who's now with the Lord, states that this divine call is internal, specific, and effectual. It is salvific. It brings regeneration and salvation. John 6, 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. John 6, 39 to 40. This is the will of him who sent me that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who beholds the son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. So by this effectual inward call God revives and draws to himself those sinners that he has foreknown and predestined for eternal life and so again friend if you're here today and you are in Jesus Christ it is because God called you to himself he called you to salvation he called you out of darkness into his glorious light He removed your heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh. He removed the blindness from your eyes and the deafness from your ears. He caused you to see his holiness and your sinfulness and your need for the very gospel of Jesus Christ. So foreknowledge, predestination, calling. The fourth word we want to look at here is justification. 
Back to verse 30. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. The Greek here is the word dekaio. It means to declare righteous. So those whom he foreknew, he predestines. Those whom he predestines, he calls. And those whom he calls, he justifies. God justifies everyone that he calls to himself effectually. One of the blessings about coming to this church is you folks here know your Bible. You know theology. You love God. You love Christ. And this is a church in our short time here we have seen understands the doctrine, the biblical doctrine of justification. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time here on this one. But again, if this is new to you, justification is that judicial act by which God declares sinful people to be just. God declares people, sinners, to be righteous. And he does that on the basis of Christ's sinless life and his substitutionary death. The death of Christ in the place of sinners and for their sins. The effectual call of God produces regeneration in a person that enables him to exercise faith in Christ. Salvation is of the Lord. And the sinner, you and I, we can't even take credit for our faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Hebrews 12, 2, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. And so those that are called place faith in Jesus Christ, and those who place faith in Jesus Christ are justified. They are declared righteous by a holy God, and they are made to stand forever in his presence without being consumed. So again, friend, if you're here today, and if you have believed in Christ alone, through faith alone, and you're trusting in him alone, you have been justified. God has declared you righteous. You've been declared righteous, not by friends or peers or by a church or a denomination. You have been declared righteous by a holy and righteous God. And you are justified until you die. Hallelujah. You can't undo justification. You are justified forever. And then finally, the fifth link in this golden, unbreakable chain is the word glorification. Glorification. Verse 30, again, and these whom he predestined, he also called, and these whom he called, he also justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. So again, as we think of this chain, foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, And all whom God justifies, he also glorifies. This is the final step of the process of redemption, the point at which we are finally made to be like Christ. That is the believer's hope, that one day we will be like Christ. 1 John 3, verse 2, a passage I preached on the last time we were together. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. 
We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. This is future. This is yet to come. This is what we are waiting for, the final consummation. But what is so interesting here in Romans 8.30 is this. Paul is writing to believers in Rome, those who have been born again, those who are called saints because they have been made holy by Christ, but they are unglorified saints. But he writes this in the past tense. All of these other links in this golden chain are in the past. As a believer in Christ, I can see, I can look and see that God foreknew me in eternity past. He predestined me for eternal life. He called me to himself, giving me repentance from my sins and faith to believe. He justified me when I placed faith in him. Glorification is still to come. It's future. None of us are in a glorified state. None of you walked through these walls to get into this place. None of you floated or or flew here this morning. But Paul puts this verb in the past tense, just like he does the previous four. And he does so because the end of the process process is so very certain. Having foreknown us and predestinating us and calling us and justifying us, God certainly will glorify us when the time comes. Philippians 1.6, Paul says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Beloved, God finishes what he starts. Even those things that he began before the foundation of the world. John MacArthur says this, This promise of final glory was no uncertain hope as far as Paul was concerned. By putting the phrase, these he also glorified in the past tense, the apostle demonstrated his own conviction that everyone whom he justified is eternally secure. Those who obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus receive with it eternal glory. That is God's own guarantee. So this is the the golden chain, the unbreakable chain. Five very important links. Not one of them can be taken away. If you were to take one of them away, there would be no guarantee that you would inherit everlasting life. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those those who he predestined, he called. Those who he called, he justified. And those who he justified, he glorified. This is the word of God. And this is the work of God. He foreknew us. He predestined us. He called us. He justified us. And he glorified us, even though that is future. And he did all this according to the kind intention of his will. That we would be to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. This story is told by the late James Montgomery Boyce. He said, years ago, Harry A. Ironside, the great Bible teacher, told a story about an older Christian who was asked to give his testimony. He told how God had sought him out and found him, how God had loved him, called him, saved him, delivered him, cleansed him, and healed him. 
a great witness to the grace, power, and glory of God. But after the meeting, a rather legalistic brother took him aside and criticized his testimony, as certain of us like to do. He said, I appreciated all you said about what God did for you, but you didn't, you didn't include anything about your part in it. Salvation is really part us and part God. You should have mentioned your part. The man said, oh, yes, I apologize for that. I'm sorry. I really should have said something about my part. My part was running away. And his part was running after me until he caught me. (laughs) Friends, we had all run away. Amen. But God. But God. God set his love on us. He predestined us to become like Jesus Christ. He called us to faith and repentance. He justified us, yes, and has even glorified us. So certain of completion of his great plan. May God alone be be praised in our lives today. Let's pray. Lord, my prayer is that every one of us this morning would be able to join Jonah, not in the belly of a fish, but to join him in exclaiming that salvation is of the Lord. Lord, if we could be honest with ourselves, if we could really think about who we were before Christ, that we indeed were running the other direction. We wanted nothing to do with you. We hated you. We rejected your holiness. We were dead in our sins. We were dead in our trespasses, unable to change our dreadful condition. But Lord, because of your great love for us, because of your abundant mercy, because of your immeasurable grace, we have been saved. Lord, salvation is of you. It is from you. It is all of you. And truly, all that we do contribute is our own sin. And Lord, when we see this, we understand that when we get to glory and when we are finally in this glorified state, you will receive all the glory. There will be zero boasting about what we have done. All our boast will be in the Lord. All our worship will be to the Lamb of God who took away our sins. So Lord, help us to understand that salvation is truly from you. You foreknew us. You knew us before we were known. You predetermined and predestined that we would come to faith, that we would have eternal life in the forgiveness of sins. Lord, you called us with an inward calling. Lord, we think of those. And as we think of that passage in Matthew 22 of all those people who have heard the same gospel that we have heard but have not come to faith, Lord, we thank you for your effectual inward calling that you called us to yourself, an irresistible calling. Lord, where our eyes were opened and we ran to you because you enabled us to run to you. We thank you that you have justified us. Lord, you have declared by a legal declaration that we are no longer sinners apart from you. We are your children We are righteous and holy because of your son. 
And we thank you, Lord, that even though we remain here today in in these fleshly bodies, we will be glorified. It is done. Lord, this chain cannot be broken. Those that you began with, you will bring all the way to completion. And we will stand before you one day without being consumed. We will see the Lamb of God who created us, who created all things, who gave his life for us, who shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And we will declare orally and with great praise that salvation belongs to the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for these reminders. Thank you for the book of Romans and for this great doctrinal truth that we can understand by your Holy Spirit. May it change us and may it cause us to love you even more today. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great day.